We'll be reading from the book of Titus this morning. We have a little bit expanded passage from what's in your compass. We'll be looking at Titus chapter 2, verse 11, on through chapter 3, verse 8. The old joke about Titus goes like this. If you can't find the book of Titus, just find Philemon and you can go from there. Table of contents is your best friend. Titus chapter 2. This now is the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out On us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord, and let's pray again. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the promise of your presence through the Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, may the the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts, Lord, be honoring unto your name. Amen. On a weekend with an unexpected Ohio State victory and a forthcoming Brown-Steelers games, it's crazy things easily overshadow that, and clearly something has overshadowed that. And may I say it, it's obvious, it's been said a few times in the service, It's 2021, and I'm sure many of you have been waiting to say that for some time now. It's where our eyes and our minds and our hearts have been looking forward to for many months now, and we are here. Now what? Well, if there was ever a slogan that I think captures in short what many of us, if not all of us, are thinking and feeling this morning, it's this slogan. We need hope and change we can believe in. See, whatever your thoughts are of former President of Obama, you can say this for sure, that his 2008 presidential campaign slogan worked and it stuck, didn't it? Hope and change we can believe in. Because I can't imagine anyone in this room this morning hopes that 2021 is just like 2020. And I'm sure then, therefore, we all want some kind of change to happen. And I think we'd all agree this morning on that, the first Sunday of this new year.
But what we may not agree on or have consensus on is where do we find that hope? For some, the hope is in the vaccine. It's coming. For others, the hope is keep that vaccine away from me. For some, the hope is I hope that we get that $2,000 they've been talking about. For others, they say, gosh, it's not worth trading our future financial security over this. For some, the hope is let's get life back to normal like it was in 2019. And for others, I don't want anything to do with the past. 2020 or before, I want a fresh new start. I hope this is a new era. What about you? Where do you find your hope for 2021? And similarly, what about change? I mean, all of us want change in some kind, and we probably most often put our efforts into things we have most control of to change. Our attitudes, our mindsets, our bodies, our daily habits. But how will those things happen? How will you change in 2021? As been mentioned already, for some New Year's resolutions are that great time to reset the mind as we refresh the calendar. A new year and a renewed time to be resolute on the things we want to change. For others, resolutions are pointless and offer no hope, so why bother? So what do we do with all this? Let me just say that I'm in the same boat of everyone I've mentioned above. I'm like the sum mentioned above that I have great hopes for this year and that things will indeed get back to normal, that I can go to an Indians game, that I don't have to worry about the size of group of, that I've been invited to. I hope to go on a picnic, to go to a museum, and to have mass-free, unfettered singing here in church on Sunday mornings. But like the others... I waffle to and fro on my hopes in the vaccine, and I wonder if we'll be any different a year from now. I do have hopes for 2021, for things to be better, to do more things together with you, our church family, and to do some things with my family. But I'm not sure if it's worth getting my hopes up for these hopes. I also know I need to change this year. As a Christian, I'm certainly pro-change. I plead with God to change the world. I plead with God to change me. I desperately want change. So like some of you, I wrote down a few ideas of ways I can change in 2021 to, to grow in godliness, hoping by writing these goals down and changing some of my daily habits, I indeed will change. But like others, in my advanced age, I've grown cynical and wonder what's the point. All of this to say, I need hope and change I can believe in for this new year. And that's why I'm so glad to have Titus 2 and 3 open in front of you and with you this morning. In these 13 verses, we can find certain hope and change to believe in. And even more straightforward and more streamlined than 13 verses is one word here in this section that I think provides everything we need for hope and change to believe in. And that one word is grace. We're going to look at it, a longer section this morning, but we're going to take a little higher level approach to see how the flow of grace fits in through this whole section. 
We're going to learn afresh what grace is. And one of the first things we see what grace is all about, it comes there in chapter 2, verse 11. We find out that grace is a grace that saves. A grace that saves. We often associate grace with salvation, and rightly so. It's an amazing grace that saves us. Grace is often defined as God's unmerited favor upon us. But thankfully, I've been around here Old North long enough to hear Dr. McGowan in many classes alter that to be a bit more precise. Not only is grace God's unmerited favor upon us, grace is God's demerited favor upon us. Not only have we not done anything positively to earn God's favor, we've done quite a few things, as we just prayed about, that has earned us the opposite of God's favor. His judgment, his punishment, his wrath. I certainly don't deserve God's love. But thank God for grace. Because instead of judgment and wrath, we have mercy and love and forgiveness. Grace is God's wonderful, undeserved goodwill towards us. But notice here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, grace is not just a concept to understand, but grace is a person, something personified. You see there that grace has appeared, and we know who Paul is talking about as he writes to Titus. He's talking about Jesus. You see that in verses 10 and verse 14. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. His life, his death, his resurrection, the whole of who Jesus is, is grace who appeared 2,000 years ago. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Grace. But specifically, Paul has in mind here the death of Jesus as he talks about the grace appearing. Look at verse 14 when he talks about Jesus giving of himself. Jesus took the scorn of man and the fury of God and his death on the cross all for us. And his appearing to be sacrificed for our salvation is grace. And you notice there it says grace has appeared to bring salvation to all people. Just this little side note there. That doesn't mean everyone will be saved. It means that all kinds of people have access to this grace. If you look at chapter 10 verses 1 through chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, you'll see all kinds of people are, are referred to. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, fathers, husbands, wives, mothers, bond servants, masters, everyone has access to grace because it appeared and walked amongst us. And exactly why Jesus came and appeared is to bring salvation, to rescue us from God's judgment and usher us into an eternal, wonderful relationship with him. All because of grace. His favor is upon us. He loves us. And that's most clearly seen on the cross as he appeared. Now this is a reason for a hope, isn't it? For it means that no matter what happened to me in 2020, and no matter what may happen to all of us in 2021, nothing will change my salvation, my eternal relationship with God. Those things are as certain as the certain appearing of grace in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And it also brings us real hope because the certainty about my future and my relationship with God is not founded on my performance or my potential. God didn't save me because he thinks, boy, I'm really going to be something. 
Or God didn't save me because, well, I got my act together, and now I'm worthy to be saved and loved. No, I have certainty, and I have hope, because Jesus Christ appeared, bringing salvation. John Chapman is a man very influential to me. He was known as the Australian Billy Graham. And Chapman, John Chapman was a charmingly eccentric man, and he would refer to himself in the third person as Chapo. And I heard him once talking about this idea of where do I, when I doubt and I struggle, maybe God doesn't love me, maybe I'm not doing enough as a Christian. He sat himself down one day and he says, Chapo, is there any fresh evidence that Jesus didn't appear and walk the earth and live a perfect life for me? No, there isn't. Well, Chapo, is there any fresh evidence that Jesus didn't die as a sacrifice for my sins or that he wasn't raised again to be my advocate with the Father in heaven? Is there any fresh evidence for that not happening? No, there isn't. So, Chapo, get on with living for the best thing that you can live for because it's absolutely certain. That's where we base our hope, the certainty of God and his work in grace not in and of me. God's grace appeared and it brings salvation. I hope that that brings you hope in 2021. But notice here our passage in verse 11 and 12 says something more than just salvation of the purpose of God's grace appearing. It's more than me just having that free ticket to get into heaven. It's more than me even having my sins forgiven. The second thing Paul tells us about grace is There is a grace, not only that saves us, there's a grace that trains us, and that's in verses 12, 13, and 14. When we start to unpack even a bit the concept of salvation and grace, we see that it's much more than a future orientation. I'll get to go to heaven when I die. Grace is life-changing, life-altering right now. Grace came not just so I know that he saved me, Grace came so that I know he is training me. Does your knowledge of grace and Jesus Christ train you? Does it do that? And for that to happen, we have to ask questions about what this salvation is for us to understand that. I mean, the very nature of the word salvation or being saved begs questions, right? I'm being saved from what? For what? Well, 12, 13, and 14 answer those questions. It gives us a bunch of things we're saved from and a bunch of things we're saved for. You'll see there in verse 12, we're saved from living a life pursuing this world. We're saved from ungodliness, as it says there in verse 12. That word ungodliness is the same word Paul uses in Romans 1, 18 and following when he says, the wrath of God is coming to the world because of the world's ungodliness. It's a terrible word. It means against God. So grace has saved me from living that way. It's also saved me, and similarly, from living according to worldly passions, the impulses to tell us to live for right now, regardless of future consequence, or regardless of the impact of others. I'm saved from living for this world. I'm also saved from thinking I'm accountable to no one. Look there at verse 14. I've been redeemed from all lawlessness. In other words, I've been set free from thinking I can live freely to my own. That wonderful, terrible passage at the end of Judges chapter 21 
captures this so well. In those days in Israel, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what grace saves us from, thinking that we can make up our own world in front of us and to do what we think is best. From lawless living to lawful living under the law of love of God. These are the things that we are saved from and that grace is training us to renounce. But it's also equally important for us to know what we're saved for, not just from, but for. In verses 12, 13, and 14, list those out as well. We're saved for right relationships. That triplet there in verse 12 shows us three types of relationships we're saved for. Self-control, upright, and godly lives. Self-control is to have a right relationship with yourself. Upright is to have a right relationship with those around you. And and godly is to have a right relationship with God. That's what we're saved for, to have right relationships in all these spheres. But also, moving on to verse 13, we're saved to have the right expectations for life. As we read there, we are being trained by grace waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not expecting heaven to be now, not expecting to have it all now, but waiting for something much better. And grace is training us that there is something much better than anything this world can give us now. So where is your hope for 2021? Grace is saved us for right relationships, for right expectations, and in verse 14, for right efforts. You'll see there that Christ came, he appeared, and gave himself to purify a people for his very own who are zealous for good works. We don't use that word zealous often, and we do, it's often used as a negative, right? But one commentator, I think, points out this well. He says, while religious zealotry can be misguided and dangerous, its absence is no less ominous. Are you zealous for the good works that you've been saved for? Or you just do them begrudgingly, dutifully? This is the change, personally, I'm going to say that I hope for most in 2021. To have a real zealotry and desire to honor my Father and the Lord Jesus Christ by wanting to do these good works, even at great expense to myself. So putting this all together... When we truly know the grace of God saving us, we will live differently because the grace of God is training us. Or as the NIV puts it so well, verse 12, it trains us or teaches us to say no and to say yes. I think it's worth at this point using that well-known illustration but helpful to illustrate here. You're You're in the ocean swimming. You're having a great time, a little far out, from the beach, and all of a sudden, a lifeboat comes racing in, and two lifeguards pull you out of the water, get you in the boat, and race towards the dock. And from that new perspective now, you realize, though, the fun you were having from a different perspective is now the area, the exact area, where three great white sharks were swimming, circling you. It would be absolutely ridiculous and insane to say, I was having so much fun then, I want to go back. No, you cling with all your might to those in the boat, to being in the boat, and wait until you have full safety ashore. This is what grace does. It trains us to see differently and to do differently, (laughs) to see now by grace 
the danger we're in in lawless, selfish lifestyles that we so easily get entangled with, and to know how insane and dangerous it would be to go back and to that lifestyle or persist in it. Grace, grace trains us to hang on desperately to the Lord and not on to this world. You see how the logic of grace works itself out here? Let's see if we can put it together. The logic of grace is that we look back from the present to the cross where I see that Jesus has made me a totally new person rescued from every lawless act. And as I look back to the cross, I'm then forced to look forward to recast my gaze forward to the future when Christ one day in all his glory and splendor will reappear. And when I look forward to the future, I see that heaven and that future can break into this box, into this present age, as it says, and trains me to say no to sin and yes to godliness. You see the logic of grace? He's promising, promising us that if we truly resolve to look back to the cross and the work of Christ and look forward to the reappearing of Christ, we can find hope and change now. A grace that will save us is a grace that will train us, and it's also a grace that will change us. And that's what chapter 3 is all about. Paul knows you need, we need, a real-life illustration, not just theory there in 11 through 14. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul is giving us an example of how this actually works. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 give us the good works we're to commit ourselves, a few of the good works we're to commit ourselves to, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. There's our command from the Lord. There's our good works. There's our godly way of living set out. But Paul knows human nature, because he's one himself, and he knows how hard it will be to actually act into verses 1 and 2. Because the people that we're surrounded by to be gentle and kind to are the people of verse 3. You see that? They're people who are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. May I add, that's a very apt description of our modern times, isn't it? Those are the people we're to be kind, to speak evil not of all, to show perfect courtesy towards, to be gentle and loving and caring. How will we do it? It's very hard when someone we love disagrees with us or does something we don't like, yet alone all the people around us. Well, Paul says, apply the logic of grace. Look there at verses 3 and 4. First of all, he says, look backwards to yourself. For we ourselves were just like them, Paul says. And maybe you never lived in this complete ungodly way, but you certainly see issues of verse 3 popping into your life here and there don't you we ourselves were just like them and sometimes are just like them verse 4 as we look back we see the cross and we see the kindness of our god and savior appearing verse 5 to save us we look back to the cross to be trained by grace and notice there, as we go on into verse 5, it's not just that we look back at the cross and know that we're just like them and 
we look back to the cross and God saved us. Notice why God saved us. Not because we have it all together, that we're smarter. We've got a better understanding of the world. We have a better political affiliation. He saved us not for anything because of we do. Not any works done in righteousness, but because of his kindness and mercy. And so where does that leave us compared to those people in verse 3? No different. No different other than that we've been washed and regenerated. See, if we think that we're better than everyone around us, if because we have all these better views and ideas and we are more self-disciplined and all this and that, then there's no way we'll be able to be kind and compassionate and gentle with those people. But if we realize that God has changed us not because of us, and we realize we were no different than them, then we're humbled by grace. We're trained by grace. And we can be compassionate to every single person around us because we're no different but by the grace of God. And it doesn't stop there. As he goes on to verse 7, he says, not only do you look backwards, but you look forwards to the inheritance according to the hope of eternal life, that you can give up anything this world has to offer. You can have loose hands with it because you have something much, much better because you are heirs to the hope of something eternal, something wonderful. We look back, we look forward, so that we, verse 8, are careful to devote ourselves to good works now. That's the logic of grace in action, isn't it? And you can apply this logic to just about anything in your life, personal or relational. Grace saves us, grace trains us, and grace changes us. It gives you hope beyond your present circumstances, and grace trains you for true gospel change in every circumstance. Hope and change we can believe in. This is what I need to start this new year. And friends, may I ask you to cast your gaze much higher than the previous or next 12 months. Look way back 2,000 years ago to the grace of God that has appeared and then look forward, oh so forward, to that great day when he will come back so that we were trained for hope and change right now. Dwell on Christ, learn from Christ, be humbled by him, and you'll be trained by him. And you do this by firmly setting your hearts and minds in and on the grace of God. So I'd ask that you would join me in committing to a grace-motivated hope and change in 2021. You can grumble and complain and hope that the world would change and all those around you would change, or you can commit yourself to the best pathway of change for this year, to be a person zealous for the good works of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Not the foolish, passionate, enslaved living of the world of this present age, but the godly, self-control, and other person-centered way of the age to come breaking into today. What better thing to commit yourself to? What better place to put your hope than in grace? And I'll have up here on the slides just a, a few of many suggestions you can do to train yourself in this kind of thinking. The first thing you can do is actually dwell significantly on this grace appeared by reading a gospel. Find a friend, find a family member, and pick Matthew or Mark or Luke, 
will be studying John here on Sunday mornings, and say, I want to study this well by the end of January, and have someone help you with that. The other thing you could do is write out, write out Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 on a note card. I know it's old-fashioned, but you can do it. And tape it to the back of your phone, because I guarantee you use the phone a lot more than your Bible. And every time you use the phone, there it's stuck there, reminding you, training you. But also, help others with this as well. Just make it a simple goal. Twice a week, text, email, message, write a note of these verses to someone you know, two people you know. And I guarantee they will be helped and you will be ingrained with this idea of grace. Commit yourself to reading really helpful books. I've listed two up on the screen there. John Stott has a classic book called The Cross of Christ. First surface, it was The Cross of Chris, but not quite Chris yet. The Cross of Christ and the other book, C.J. Mahaney's little short book called The Cross Center Life is fantastic. Pick one of those two and read it. And the last thing you can do of many, commit to train yourself by the logic of grace. Humble yourself and live a life of grace as Titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Let grace rewire your knee-jerk reaction to the world around you. Instead of sneering and condescension and anger, try gentleness, courtesy, compassionate living to all those you are with and around. It may sound quaint to say this, but may I say it this way, commit to live graceful lives. Well, let me close with this well-known quote from a man who spent his life wrestling with, for himself and others, grace. I think this quote captures just about everything we've talked about this morning in one short quip. John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Those of you who've been around church circles know John Newton, probably that name, because he wrote one of the most famous hymns, songs ever written, called Amazing Grace. And instead of me issuing some final words of motivation for you now, I thought we would do this together, because the song, the four stanzas of Amazing Grace, are fantastic to summarize and ingrain in our minds and hearts just how amazing grace is, that it saves us and trains us and changes us. So we're going to stand and sing a cappella, Amazing Grace. Now, go ahead and stand. I didn't have the guts to lead it myself. I thought about it. So I'm going to have Chris come up because he's going to do communion. And so Chris is going to come up and lead for us. And I'm going to quietly exit. So Chris, why don't you come on up? That's true friendship, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs)